This is a 720 to go podcast from Chicago's WGN Radio 720. This podcast is sponsored by ADM. As one of the world's largest agricultural processors, ADM is uniquely positioned to serve the world's growing needs for abundant food and renewable energy. ADM. When it comes to the business of America's farmland, you need the information from the people who know it best. That's why we bring you AgriCast with Orion Samuelson and Max Armstrong. And good morning to you. Good to be back in the Midwest after about uh, six weeks out in Arizona. But uh, good to be back here still looking at very wet soil. And uh, we'll be talking about that a little bit later when uh, Max talks markets with Jerry Gulkey of the Gulkey Group. But uh, as I mentioned earlier to Matt, we do have a lot to talk about this morning. So we're going to get to it uh, right away. Uh, Jim Fazell standing by and we'll check in with him when we continue on the Saturday morning show. Well, for the second week in a row, we get to hear from Jim Fazell talk about rain and more rain. Good morning, Jim. Uh, good morning, Ori, and I almost am bubbling be- from being underwater. <laughs> well, I, 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 I just looked at your rainfall amount at your yard, and it's above normal, isn't it? Yes, quite a bit above normal. We had... Uh, uh, over six inches of rain in this past week, which included uh, uh, that snowfall, which we melted, melted down. Uh, hard to believe that we've had two decent snows here in the past month and month of April. Never, never can I remember we had two. I remember one on occasion, but uh, our our water was our. our Yard was under a few inches of water. I went out uh, this morning, and pretty, pretty nearly all of it's gone. Although there are a couple of puddles in some places. Actually, you know, rice or watercress would do real well right now in our yard. <laughs> You're uh, right. And there's more of this to come. It hasn't stopped yet. Uh, the long-range forecast here for the next week says uh, possibly Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday we're going to get more of this stuff with scattered storms. And uh, you know, normally that wouldn't be too bad, except for the fact that the ground is saturated, and uh, we have some wet weather problems. The biggest one I can see is delayed planting. We're not going to be planting for several weeks. Uh, this is inconvenient for us gardeners, but, you know, for farmers, that spells possible disaster. And there are a lot of areas throughout the Midwest here where farmers are just, many of them are just not going to be able to get in. It's, we're, we're running out of time to put in corn, and soybeans is coming up pretty quick. And, and when you stop and think about it, you know, um, Farmers, uh, if they have a disaster like this, it's their livelihood. But only 2% of our people in this country are farmers, and food is really the basis for our society. So if we had a crop disaster or a complete crop disaster in this country, we're not too far from famine. Fortunately, we have other countries that could provide for us, but when you go back into history, uh, originally hunters and gatherers could only get enough produce for themselves, and it wasn't until we found efficiency and in production and in harvesting that we could finally get enough to, that the farmers could produce enough for themselves and for others. So when you stop and think of it, our trades, our services, even our politicians are all actually dependent on the fact that we have such wonderful, efficient farmers. We need to do everything we can to support them. So off my soapbox, I don't need to continue okay. on that. Okay, but no, a good soapbox. Uh, and anyway, the ground is really too wet to work. And if, if you get out and work the soil when it's wet, it destroys the structure. Uh, that can take years to recover. You make make uh, bricks out of your soil, and it takes nature to, to do anything to, to improve that. 
planting in wet ground isn't good anyway because the wet soil stays cold. The seeds rot if you get them down in the soil. And if you put out transplants, the roots drown before they can recover. And if you already have plants trying to grow in wet ground, a lot of times the roots become anaerobic and the plants wilt even though the ground's wet. They can't pick up nutrients, iron, nitrogen, and they can't even pick up water even though they're stuck in it. Uh, nutrients in the wet soil are unavailable because the forms are just kinds that the plants can't pick up. Instead of having uh, nitrate, nitrogen, we have ammonia. Uh, the bacteria that produce one or the other thrive in whatever conditions they have. That's not necessarily the best for plants because even then you get reduced nitrogen, you get ammonia and nitrite instead of nitrate. Anyway, you need to wait till the soil dries. Squeeze a handful of it into a ball, and then if you can crumble it, it's fine. Uh, the first thing you need to do if, once you can get in the, into your garden is to clean up from the flooding. You need to pick up the trash, and there's a lot of stuff that floated in, accumulated from other areas, or maybe from trash piles and that, uh, from, the, from the winter that are in your own yard. So you need to pick all this stuff up. We do have areas that have been contaminated by water flowing into them from other areas that have either oil in them or other chemicals. Uh, you can help very, very well to, to improve that situation, to ameliorate that situation, simply by turning the soil over deeply to thoroughly incorporate these contaminants in the good soil. It's amazing. We have soil organisms down there that will digest this stuff. They'll degrade it so it goes back to being something that's not toxic. Soil organisms are magnificent, magnificent things. Uh, if you're really having a lot of contamination concerned with it, activated charcoal dug into the ground will do the same thing. It will decontaminate your soil for you. Then once you get, get an area that, that you think is good enough to grow things, you can sow a, a cover crop in there like annual rye or something like that. Then when, then when that is grown, you know the soil is pretty well decontaminated. You can turn this cover crop in, and uh, it will add organic material to your soil, and then you can be in a position where you can do some planting. Next, there's plenty of time to plant gardens. Uh, we still have a 50% a chance of a frost until the end of this month. Um, so we're having some problems, problems that we're going to encounter with trees and shrubs, uh, foliar diseases. With the amount of moisture that we've had, we're going to have things like apple scab and leaf spots, anthracnose and even diplodia on pine trees and needle cast on spruces. You need to spray the proper fungicides to control these things. Uh, and the timing is important. With the apple trees, you need to get them right now as the buds are just swelling, and it means spraying every 7 to 10 days as long as the weather stays wet. Uh, with the anthracnose on sycamore trees, we're, we're simply going to lose leaves off sycamore trees uh, until the weather dries out. There's nothing you can do about it, but warm, dry weather will correct the problem. These other plants that I mentioned, there are fungicides that need to be applied to them. If they're big trees, you're probably going to need to hire an arborist to come in and do it for you. Out in the turf grasses, we're, we're having uh, disease problems there. Uh, many of these diseases are due to the, to the excess moisture. You need to let the grass dry out, especially before you go out and mow it, because if you mow now, you're going to make tracks. In fact, your mower may even sink in the ground. Um, if the grass grows too tall, you still don't want to mow it until the ground is wet, and then try to not mow more than half the top off at one time. Uh, first of all, if the grass is six inches tall, uh, it's going to be tough to get through that, mowing it down to the right height. So you might need to cut it twice in two different directions. You may even need to collect the clippings to keep the hay from smothering the grass after you cut it. Uh, strangely enough, we really don't need to do any watering right now, but I've already been around in the neighborhoods and seen sprinklers running. They're on a time clock. 
go out and hit the time clock with a hammer or something, but you don't need to water until the ground dries out. And actually, you don't need to do any watering until the plants begin to wilt from drought. Then you need to consider doing some watering. Now, there's some other things that we can do right now. Um, Since you can't get outdoors, we can still start seeds indoors. Uh, The tomatoes and peppers and so forth, there's still plenty of time to do that. If you bought plants in in flats or packs, uh, move them out on a good day. Uh, Move them under protection if the weather threatens, uh, if we have rain or frost, and we can still have frost, as I mentioned. Uh, And one of the other things you need to do, identify the areas of poor drainage in your yard and make some plans to correct them. And, you know, all of us farmers and gardeners, we're all eternal optimists. So we know the season's going to get started, and uh, and six months from now we're going to look back and say, well, you know, it was pretty bad, but we got through it. Yeah, we always do. And when it comes to planting on the farm with our equipment today, we can plant a lot of acres in a very short time. So hopefully, uh, Greg Solier says we'll keep getting some showers off and on until June, but hopefully we'll get the crop in as usual and have a crop. So Jim, thank you for joining us and thank you for your soapbox on and farmers and what they do for all of us that we tend to forget about because we don't have to do it. Jim Fizell, our specialist in ornamental horticulture, with us here on the Saturday Morning Show. It's 18 minutes after 5 o'clock here on this Saturday morning. Blossom Time Festival underway in southwestern Michigan. An annual event there that's been going on for decades to salute the orchard industry. Now the vineyard industry as well, because they do have vineyards and winemakers in southwestern Michigan. But... uh, Uh, going back to the Herb Teichman days, and we'll miss him at this year's Blossom Time Festival, no doubt of that. But uh, going back to uh, Herb, uh, cherries and apples and the other fruit trees that burst into bloom about this time of the year, hopefully will have broken out and will be there for you to see if you head to uh, southwestern Michigan, Benton Harbor, St. Joe, and the... uh, Parade gets underway about noontime today, traveling from uh, St. Joseph across the river into downtown Benton Harbor. So uh, looking for something to do and enjoy on a spring day, Blossom Time Festival in Michigan. It's uh, 19 minutes after 5 o'clock, and uh, a few days ago, agriculture lost a good friend, Senator Richard Luger. And uh, after that happened, Max had the opportunity to talk to the former president of the Indiana Farm Bureau who worked with the senator. So let's check in with Max now for that visit. Many people are remembering former Indiana Senator Richard Luger. He had quite an impact. Of course, he was the mayor of Indianapolis, Indiana, before he represented the constituents in the state of Indiana. And among those were farmers in Indiana who got to know him well, including the past president of the Indiana Farm Bureau, Knox County, Indiana, farmer Don Vilwak. And Don, I'm sure you must feel a sense of loss because you worked closely with Senator Luger and advised him on agricultural affairs, did you not? I did, Max. I was very fortunate, and I was very honored uh, to actually work for him as his ag liaison in the state of Indiana. 
I'd uh, also been on his Ag Advisory Committee prior to that, and so uh, we had a long uh, relationship, and he was a tremendous mentor to me. So uh, we're grieving a little bit here today in, in Knox County. He talked a lot about his farm in Marion County. He referenced that often when we in the media spoke with him or when he was addressing an agriculture group. And, of course, it provided him a tie to agriculture. But it seemed like it was more than that. There was a sense of pride in the fact that he owned that land and it was involved in agriculture in some way. You're exactly right. And I was with him multiple times. And when he was in Indiana at an ag event, when I was on staff, I, of course, was with him. And every time, but also in other events that weren't necessarily agriculture, that he would mention that, I think, 604-acre farm in Marion County, and he also had trees planted there. And one of my most fond memories was uh, they dedicated the opening of CRP, and uh, John Block was the Secretary of Ag, and we all gathered on Senator Luger's farm where he was going to plant trees and uh, to enter into the CRP program. But one thing that I also remember was he had challenged me on marketing corn uh, or corn crop and always would ask, well, how much have you sold or whatever? And I hate to admit this, but he beat me more times than I ever even come close to uh, beating him. He was an astute marketer as well. He maybe had an inside track there. Uh, you know, I remember the CRP was a part of the 85 Farm Bill, so this would have been, I guess, what, about 1986 when they planted those trees. Would that have been yeah, somewhere? It surely was, and it was a big event, and he was very proud of uh, being part of that. He had a conservation heart. And he was uh, had those trees professionally managed to maximize them. I'd like to go see him again today. That's been a few years now, and they're probably getting a little age on them. Uh, and I bet it's a beautiful, beautiful uh, woods. One thing that he did that maybe some people do not realize, unless they look back at his obituary or look back at his bio was the fact that he was the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, a very powerful post. And sometimes, Don, when when a lawmaker becomes the Speaker of the House or becomes the chairman of a powerful committee, there's the feeling that they lose touch with the constituents a little bit. They're on a national stage. They're so knee-deep in everything that's going on with the country as a whole. Was there ever that feeling about Senator Luger? Never had that thought ever that... Uh he worked extremely hard, uh, someone that was pretty safe in their seat and really wouldn't had to come home every weekend, but he did. He would come home on a Friday and return to Washington, D.C. on a Monday. But he was out in the state and uh, going to events all around, and he stayed plugged in, stayed connected, really cared about Hoosiers. But one thing... He had a broader vision. He had all of America's farmers and ranchers at heart and know how important an industry, agriculture is to this nation. And he carried that message with him, even as chairman of foreign relations. And I think uh, farmers and ranchers both had gained from uh, the foreign relations 
uh, ties that he had with other dignitaries and got to share our story with them as well. I wondered about that with the foreign scene, the foreign markets, the competition from other countries being so significant to the United States farmer. And of course, uh, you know, we've had a lot of entanglements, including the ones currently with with other nations around the world from an agriculture standpoint. And he, he had a front row seat for some of that back in the day, didn't he? He sure did. And one of the things I recollect was he uh, valued relationships with those foreign dignitaries. He knew their names. He knew their wives' names. He knew their kids' names. And he just had a phenomenal memory. I don't know, maybe photographic, but if it wasn't, it was very close. And even in retirement years at the Luger Center, he had a lot of contacts with those foreign dignitaries trying to get them access into the State Department, into uh, administrations uh, recently and currently. There was such a, a great spirit of cooperation among some of those members of the House and Senate back in the day, and it doesn't make any difference what party you're talking about. You could come up with names from, from either side of the aisle, and he was one of those guys, it seemed to me, if I'm not mistaken, Don, had a great uh, spirit of cooperation, reaching across the aisle to get things done. Well, he was he was more open than than I was, and I admired him for that because some of those other senators just kind of gnawed on my heart a little bit of their obstinance. But he would work with Senator Harkin from uh, Iowa, who was a Democrat on uh, the other side of the aisle, that had a lot of different thoughts and ideas of what Senator Luger had, or it could be uh, Senator Leahy was also had been chairman and he had a fantastic working relationship was able to get compromises that we don't see today he truly was one of the last statesmen on the hill out in washington dc don Vilwalk, former president of the indiana farm bureau and as we learned uh, at one time worked with senator richard luger the Republican from Indiana, who you just heard about the role that he played in many activities in and out of agriculture. And our thanks to uh, Max Armstrong for sharing that visit with us earlier this week on the passing of Senator Richard Luger from Indiana. We'll catch up with news headlines when we continue here on the Saturday Morning Show. If you have listened to me over the years, you know my love for FFA and 4-H. Sometimes we take that for granted, but a report a few days ago, the annual report of the National FFA Foundation points out once again the important role that FFA members play in building a stronger country and a stronger workforce. Let me share with you just some of the numbers in that FFA report. First of all, 8 million strong. More than 8 million FFA alumni worldwide advocates for the industry of agriculture. And in 2018, there were 8,630 local FFA chapters, 2,236 alumni in the U.S., Puerto Rico, and the U.S. Virgin Islands. Total membership of students, 
came in at 669,989. Now, I can remember covering the FFA convention when there were no women at the convention. They weren't allowed membership in the FFA, but that changed decades ago. And so today, the breakdown of the membership, 54% male, 46% female, and indeed, they do have diversity. 68% of the membership white, 13% Hispanic, 6% others, 4% black. And this past year, the 91st National FFA Convention, 69,944 FFA members were in attendance. Some other noteworthy information in that annual report, the time of service to community given by FFA members and alumni. 89,000 FFA alumni and supporter chapters in 20 states donated more than 69,165 hours of service across the country. I hope you can understand my love of FFA and also 4-H. I'm a graduate of both programs, and again, I say the FFA program changed my life by leading me into an agricultural broadcast career. Congratulations, 4-H and FFA. My thoughts on Samuelson Says, a presentation of Tribune Radio Networks. And coming up, Max Armstrong talks markets and weather with Jerry Gulkey when we continue here on the Saturday Morning Show. It'll be a different Farm Progress show later this summer with the mergers that have taken place among the companies that serve farmers. There'll be new names, new signs, new logos out there among the more than 600 exhibitors. It'll be the place for the producer to sort it all out. The Farm Progress show dates this year are August 27th through the 29th. The show will be back at Decatur, Illinois. The 66th annual Farm Progress show. Keep an eye on the website for updates, farmprogressshow.com. At the microphone with us this weekend, Jerry Gulkey, Gulkey Group. It has been a while since we have visited, and uh, I wish I could say we've seen substantial improvement of the market since we last talked, but that has not been the case. No, it has not. It's been uh, uh, recently, of course, it's in soybeans especially, it's been like trying to catch a falling knife, and and of course there's a lot of ideas that were too cheap or too cheap, and Yet, without China, uh, we're not cheap enough uh, compared to our competition. And that's some of the things I think uh, a lot of people overlooked is that, you know, we, we focus on the United States, but it's, you know, it's, there's a saying that says costs are local and you're selling prices global. And so we are the, low, low, we're in, we're the highest priced source, and it's not so much anymore who can produce it the cheapest as who will sell it the cheapest. And it's it's tough, but... We got ourselves into a pickle, I think, for a while. <laughs> We've continued to hear the talk this week that probably by the middle part of this month, there will be some kind of an agreement with China. Are, are you paying any attention to those uh, rumors that whipsaw the market? Are you are you listening to those anymore? Or you... Yeah, I, I watch them pretty closely, and we have some political contacts that, you know, th- think they know, but we sometimes hear the things before we hear it from them. But uh, I think the important thing with what Trump does is that if he does anything with China, with ag, when he says he's going to do it, um, if they do make a deal, it has to be uh, sustained. In other words, 
And none of this, you know, I've been through this before where, where China or Russia would come and say, well, we'd like to buy your spring wheat in North Dakota if market conditions permit. Well, they never came back and bought because we weren't cheap enough. And so in the same way in beans, we need to, Trump needs to look at this and say, we need to get rid of a half a billion bushels of beans, get them out of this country. And they put them in reserve. All that does is shift it, uh, the total global supply around a little. And they hold some of the carry out. We hold some. And, of course, then we have two major forces that can control the price if things get too cheap. You just dump some stuff on it. So I think the only other avenue is if he doesn't make it work, they've said they'll help agriculture. And um, Canada did that yesterday and said they're going to low-interest loan for the farmer. All that does is says, uh, I'll loan you the money for free if you put it in. You still got to pay the money back if you can't make money. And so I think the the answer I would have if I were there, I would say we're going to create a marketing loan, raise a loan rate to 9 bucks put a marketing loan under it like we've had, and then you flush out the, the supply, and somebody doesn't plant, and, and it can't be us. It has to be somebody in Brazil or Ukraine or Russia or somewhere. But um, it's very, uh, very taxing. Uh, uh, I think a lot of global traders have just gotten fed up and just say, show me the money. I'm tired of, you know, when was it? December 1st is going to be March 1st, yeah. and now we might make a deal by the end of June. Which coincidentally might be exactly the day we come out with a revised acreage report in stocks and all positions, and it could be crazily bullish if it turns out to be bullish um, from tariff standpoint. And um, those summer reports are something we need to keep on the radar yeah, screen. Yeah, exactly. Especially the acreage thing, and that may not even be valid because it's your intentions as of June one. Well, my intentions hopefully is to finish planting corn, but by June thirtieth, we may not have done that. And. Um, so how, how excited should we get about uh, this uh, corn market from the standpoint of the inability to plant? Well, I think uh, uh, I look at it and say, how much can we afford to lose before we have a problem? And, and of course, we have about 2.2 billion bushels left over. We need down to around one six. So that's 600 million bushels we need to get rid of. If we produce 170 million, that's 4 million acres that we need to lose in acres, production, or a combination of the two. So we need to not plant as many acres and see that yield come down. And, of course, with 90 million acres uh, harvested, or 82 million, I guess, harvested, 10 bushels an acre is 800 million. changes the whole ball of wax here, at least in the United States. But South America and Argentina and and, uh, Brazil produced about 800 million bushels more than anybody thought they were going to six months ago. So it's a... we got to get keep that demand going and maybe catch up again someday. I hope it isn't another 20 years before we catch up with, with supply. What's the possibility of some, uh, well, to use the, the old uh, term from the past, irrational exuberance here in the marketplace with a market that is heavily short if we continue to see the rains in May? Well, I'm sure there, there's that possibility, and I've heard it like you have uh, in the media. Well, the funds are short. And, um, and that represents a buying opportunity somewhere down the road, short covering. So it's dangerous to be short here. In the meantime, the price of grain have gone down. And I look at the funds who, who manage billions of dollars, probably smarter than I am by sure, for sure, or I'd be doing it. And they get in, they're, they're proactive. They get in a position for what's coming next. And so you need a, a shock, you know, and we've had all this kind of rain. What that tells you is that, again, don't plant 4 million acres of corn, Jerry, and we sure don't need it in the beans. So the alternative now would be prevent plant, and they've messed that up to the point where that's not real attractive, you know, to a lot of unless you bought up your coverage and you have a high 200 bushel an acre APH and low rent. So um, there's a lot of things that can happen, but um, uh, you need to see them fall into place. And, of course, the big one is, and that's the thing about, you know, uh, I woke up at 2 o'clock in the morning or heard about it at 2 o'clock in the morning, the Chinese put the tariff on, you know. 
Well, what's going to happen? You know, uh, you know, Trump doesn't like anybody that doesn't like uh, the economy or doesn't like. So you view a speculator or the hedger. And if he says, Jerry, you want to sell grain, you want to be short because you think it's going lower, be my guest. But I'm going to run it up your nose with some kind of announcement. So there's that nervousness. And so no, no wonder the guys that are trading are want to stand aside and say, tell me the trend and I'll pick up half of it along the way. And that leaves us holding the bag. So what are the chances of a Super Bowl bounce of any sort here with uh Prolonged rains. I'm, I'm talking about the corn market. What, what is the possibility? I think it started last week. Uh, in fact, we've been short a lot of grain, as you know, and, and still short in beans uh, considerably, even out two years. I've never sold beans out two years before, but it's on paper. I can, I can get out. But on corn, we did start to lift hedges to the point where we have very little hedged as of, as of this week. Uh, and uh, to me, it looks like there's some technical reason for it. There's some common sense reason for it. And uh, I look at it and say, is at corn, fundamentally and technically, you look at it. If this is the best that you can pay me now, then I got a problem a year from now. I mean, I need to take a look at calling a good auctioneer or something. Whereas beans, I can argue that fundamental situation, if it comes to, through fruition, uh, there needs to be a seven in front of beans in order to get rid of them. And, you know, the, we get to these, you maybe recall years ago, they talked about market clearing levels. A lot of people don't know what that means. That's doggone cheap, you know, to get rid of it, where somebody doesn't plant or you find a new use for it you know and uh, but corn um, like i say um i i think there's a possibility and usually when we run a, a weather market like we've probably started now usually lasts four to five weeks to the fruition you know you you build in your worst case and within six weeks we saw it in south america then five or six weeks where does that take us that takes us ironically to about the middle of june you know by that time we'll know whether we got a lot of it planted and so i think we watch it carefully and um and um look at some targets my concern is, I listen to a lot of other analysts, and a lot of them are saying, we get any pop in this market, you better be selling every 10-cent rally in corn because we're doomed. Uh, they weren't talking like that a year ago or even six months ago, and now everybody wants to sell a rally. Um, it's just like us to end up selling the majority of our corn at $4 and then see it finally something happen, in, in not in June necessarily, but in August to, to get hot now after being wet. Um, and that turns the apple cart around again and... You know, the perfect storm is out there for China to lock in some prices and say we're going to buy 300, 400 million bushels of corn from you every year for the next five years, until uh, three years until Trump runs again, and we're going to buy some more beans and, um, and put them in reserve and hold them for a rainy day. I never thought I'd see the time where I'd have to rely on one person or, or one situation, let alone tariff, to control my destiny. And... Uh, we're going to write a lot of textbooks on how, to, how we're going to act next time that happens. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. Hopefully this is the last one. In summary, what are you telling growers here? As at this particular stage, with very little of the corn crop planted, what's the best guidance you're giving them? Well, we're, we're, we, we have, um, we've accepted risk at this point. In other words, we're, we're probably 20% sold now instead of 70 to 80% in corn. And, of course, we're very, very quick to react if they have to. One of the things I've learned is that, about the time you think you got a lock on intelligence, then reality sets in and you were wrong. So I tell the guys that work for me, look over your shoulder. What is it that we're missing that we can't can't see coming? You know, it's that black swan event. And right now, um, you know, I look at it the other side of it. Would you really want to sell corn here? And I just came drove in from from Rockford to uh, Chicago area here, and it. I mean, there's water all over, and this is not. Uh, you know, this is bad. This is bad timing, and we've, now we've got some corn in the ground that's on cold, saturated soils. It's it's not like last year. It's totally upside down from last year. So I think we really have to be cautious here, and uh, and take a look at 
when prices go up, then you ask yourself, why, why are they there? And then I tell the guys that work for me and, and look back, and you know everybody has resistance and support and all that. But every time you print a high and low and last on grain, it has to do with the fundamental situation. Really, we're trading fundamentals. We're not trading technicals, but technicals tell you how, how that's been traded. You look back and say, all right, the last time I was at 284 or, 290, uh, or 384 or 390, what were the fundamentals and what was I thinking ahead then? Has anything changed? Is this just a, a knee-jerk or a dead cat bounce? Or have the fundamentals really changed to where it's a different supply and demand thing? So it's... It's a constant battle, but it, but it's fun if you if you do it right. You know you can you can you can make a living. You know Jerry Goki Goki Group. Thank you. Good to see you. And our thanks to Max and Jerry for that report. But Max, we'll not let you go too far away because we begin a summertime series this week on the Saturday morning show, checking in with BASF people in the field around the Midwest to sort of get an idea on what's happening with well, now planting, but later on growth and development. So uh, we'll bring Max back. Uh, we'll bring Max back after this time out here on the Saturday morning show. Well, during this growing season, Orion, we'll have some help keeping track of what's happening out in those farm fields here in the Midwest. Help from the technical service representatives of BASF who will be watching the farm activity out there, watching what's happening with the crops. And of course, right now, nothing is happening out there as there's been so much rain. Kurt Martin's technical service representative with BASF joins us this morning to visit about that. Kurt, are you sensing uh, quite a bit of frustration out there? There is a little bit of frustration out, out in the field. Uh, uh, still some hope. Some of the guys that got some, some of the corn and even a little bit of beans in early. Uh, it's starting to peek out of the ground. Uh, there's still obviously a lot to go and, and a lot of concerns about that. One thing that occurs to me, in a late season, quite often, we will see that, yep, there is a lot of greening up that takes place out there before we get anything planted. I guess producers will be keeping an eye on that and needing to address it, correct? You bet, especially this season. We've, we've, we've jumped out to an early start in some spots, and the sprayers haven't been able to catch up, or we just haven't gotten that burn down on. Our winter annuals are starting to get big, especially things like mirror's tail, or weeds like mirror's tail, starting to bolt and get bigger when those weeds start to bolt and get bigger obviously they're they're going to be harder to control and our annuals are starting to come on we've got a lot of giant ragweed that's emerged land squirt land squirt are starting to come on some velvet leaf our annual grasses are here and water hemp's knocking on the door it's about ready to come out of the ground so so we're going to have a lot of weeps to battle here when we can get back in the field some of these of which you speak have become pretty notorious uh, in terms of uh, fighting weeds. Uh, they come back and come back with a vengeance and continue to spread, it seems, in some instances. They, they, they sure do. They sure do. And, and we're having to use multiple effective modes of action of herbicides uh, to, to combat them. We also need to remember that we need good coverage, especially with certain herbicides, and it's it's just not the herbicides themselves, but it's the application technology and coverage to make those herbicides successful. And uh, that includes, I guess, uh, carrier volume, uh, use of adjuvants uh, that are necessary out there? All of the above. All of the above. We've got to get good coverage. We want to make sure that those herbicides are working. We have the proper adjuvants. It, it, it all adds up to being successful with that herbicide application. 
You've seen some of these uh, late or delayed planting seasons before. What else comes to mind? Is there anything that uh, typically the grower really, really needs to keep on the radar screen here with everything that's going to be clouding the attention of the producer? Is, is there something that we want to make sure we don't miss? We want to make sure that we continue to have our residual herbicides out there in these applications. You got to remember annual weeds. We may be focused on winter annual weeds right now, but those annual weeds, especially like our water hemp, it's very difficult to control anymore. Right? We're going to be most successful fighting future flushes with that residual herbicide. So we want to make sure that we're not cutting that residual. We're, we're actually having, making sure that we're, we're keeping our residual rate up and getting it on there, especially with our burden down, so we're helping protect against those future flushes. It can come back to haunt us a little bit later in the season, I guess, then, if we don't, right? You bet. It will require some attention as the season goes on. The producer needs to be vigilant, I guess you would say, when we're talking about uh, effective weed control. It's not getting any easier, Max. Uh, we need to we need to remember that. And and uh, when we get out there, we're going to make sure our weeds are the right size and, and adjusting our herbicide rates and getting that coverage and getting good control. Kurt Martin's there, Orion. He's in that western Illinois area, a technical service representative for BASF, and we'll be getting these updates throughout the growing season. He just commented to me after he drove yesterday, Orion, from the Quad Cities to Bloomington, how much water is in the fields and how high all of the streams and rivers are at this point in the season. He said it's very noticeable when you go down the road. Thank you very much, Max, and we look forward to weekly reports on crop conditions and growth and planting progress and all of that on further reports from the BASF folks. We're at, uh, well, three and a half minutes before six o'clock news time, and uh, let me quickly look at where we ended market-wise yesterday. We saw the July wheat contract Ending the week at $4.38 a bushel. That was down six and a half cents for the day yesterday. July corn at 370 and three quarter cents, down just a quarter of a cent yesterday. July soybeans down two and a quarter cents and ending the week at $8.42 and a quarter cents a bushel in trade in the grain market at the Chicago Board of Trade. Livestock Futures, Chicago Mercantile Exchange. The June lean hog contract down 20 cents for the day yesterday at $92.75 a hundredweight. The June live cattle contract lost 37 cents. $113.42 on the close, and the May feeder cattle contract dropped $1.72, and it ended the week at $137.15 a hundredweight. And then the one other note that will have an impact probably on some market prices, the Coast Guard closed the Mississippi River near St. Louis to boat and barge traffic yesterday because of the excessive rains and heavy snow melt this spring, swelling the major shipping waterway to near record levels. The Mississippi, according to the Coast Guard, is closed from River Mile Marker 179 to 184, and the Coast Guard said the river will reopen as soon as conditions improve. But then he said... He would not speculate on when that would be. That's going to be up to Mother 
nature. Well, again, this weekend, Blossom Time Festival in southwestern Michigan. And uh, here in this part of Illinois, the opening yesterday of the uh, Arlington Park Racecourse, I call that an agricultural industry because it involves horses and a lot of feed to feed those horses. So I call that an agricultural industry. And today is a special day at Arlington because they'll be covering the Derby as well as the live races at the track. So a lot going on. And uh, before, oh, one thing that is not going on in case you missed it, and I don't see how you could have missed it because we talked about it a great deal, but World Pork Expo canceled in Des Moines, Iowa in the first week of June because of concern over the spread of African swine fever. So there will be no World Pork Expo first weekend of June in Des Moines, Iowa. And I hope you got word for that because that is a significant change and certainly will be in your plans. Well, that's our time here on the Saturday Morning Show, and our thanks to Bob Ferguson for engineering it for us. Thanks to you for joining us every weekend here on the Saturday Morning Show. Orion Samuelson keeps you connected to the world of business and agriculture on WGN. Hear his reports weekday mornings on the Steve Cochran Show and during the noon hour on the Wintrust Business Lunch. Plus, catch Orion and Max on Saturday mornings at 5 a.m. only on Chicago's WGN Radio 720.